Less than 30 years have passed since the commercial availability of the internet and just over a decade since the release of the iPhone. Today, nearly everything in the developed world, from business to healthcare to dating, is rooted in the digital world. Communication has never been easier, information never more accessible, and entertainment never more plentiful, all thanks to the internet. But the rate of adoption and the technology's pervasiveness present complex challenges. Fake news and manipulated media assault our senses and disrupt democratic elections. Screen addiction and social withdrawal worry educators and parents. Cyber attacks pose a growing risk to economic and national security. Like all technologies in history, we learn these can be used for both good and evil. This last quarter of a century has been one of remarkable and unpredictable change. What will the next 30 years of the internet look like and how can we ensure we like what we see? Welcome to another episode of the EWI podcast. My name is Bruce McConnell and today we are joined by Esther Dyson, a noted angel investor, best-selling author, philanthropist, and a longtime friend of the East-West Institute. Esther, welcome to the EWI podcast. It's great to be here. Esther Dyson is a recognized name in the digital world. A successful former business owner, she is a leading investor focused on healthcare, open government, digital technology, and outer space. She is the executive founder of Wellville, a nonprofit project focused on improving equitable well-being and influencing investments in national long-term health policy. She is chairman of Adventure Holdings, an angel investor focused on new business models, technologies, and markets. She also sits on the boards of several companies, including Yandex and Swivel, and is the author of the best-selling book, Release 2.0, A Design for Living in the Digital Age. So Esther, I want to take you back in the time machine some 30 years ago to the fledgling digital world. What were your first impressions of the internet at that time, and, and how did you get engaged? The one thing I thought was important to point out at that point was that mostly the story of the world was told by large institutions and they were centralized and powerful and you know then we had TV which spread information everywhere and children could watch it but people were still not speaking for themselves and what the internet did was number one it gave any individual a pulpit they still had to somehow collect an audience but people could start telling their own history and they could start finding one another which ultimately led to a lot of the color revolutions in Egypt. When I first went to Russia, I started using the internet to send email because you couldn't communicate by telephone. So they actually were using it purposefully before most Americans. Another really interesting thing was children could get on the internet and not just watch as they did with TV, but they could actually communicate as adults if they were smart enough. And it, it really changed the dynamics of people. It very much decentralized the world. Now it's, interestingly, getting centralized again by companies like Facebook and Google. But it, it upended a lot of the power structures of those days. It really undermined authority. It increased transparency. But it also increases the transparency of things that aren't true, so to speak. We'll get back to the question of the big tech in a minute, but let's talk a little bit about the, the early days of idealistic view. We had an idealistic view in those days. This is going to be, as you say, a liberalizing 
thing. It's going to democratize uh, the world. And now we see it uh, is being uh, used by authoritarian states to take it in a different direction. Yeah, I mean, the authoritarian threat was quite visible then. At that point, they weren't as good at using the internet, but it was, that was pretty clearly going to happen. Another interesting dynamic was anonymity and the balance between transparency and privacy. A lot of people were excited about the anonymity. I was pretty early, I think, on thinking that that was probably not a good idea and that ultimately there should be some kind of an inverse relationship to the amount of power you had and the privacy you could get. So if you were powerful, if you were an agent of the government, you had to be transparent. If you were an individual citizen, you could be as private as you wanted, but if you wanted things from the government or from somebody else, then there needed to be this trade of information for access. And I still believe that. I think I'm on the board of something called Open Corporates, which is focused on making sure that corporate records are visible and accessible and so forth. And so things like the Panama Papers can be revealed to the public. I have to agree with you that there needs to be this balance between anonymity and privileges. But my sense is that the trend right now is that anonymity is going away in general. And doesn't there need to be spaces on the internet where people can gather anonymously and speak about things? Yes. So anonymity is going away in general, but not entirely. There should be places on the internet and off the internet where people can be anonymous, but the power of them to do anything should be very limited and people should be able to leave. So if people want to go and trade whatever they want to trade, gossip or whatever, in private, that's fine. But if they start publishing it, then that becomes problematic. And here, here you have this whole issue of freedom of speech and regulation and so forth. And the more you become a public utility, the more duty you have to regulate. And so I like the idea of having a market, so to speak, of Facebook can have different rules from Twitter, can have different rules from some other place, and people can decide where they want to go. But when the president of a country, guess which one, starts to use, for example, Twitter as a place to make public proclamations, then the rules start to change again because there's some requirement for appropriate regulation. And the, the challenge is the companies often don't really want that burden. They're sort of saying very politely, please regulate us because then we, we're no longer responsible. And if you regulate us, as long as you regulate the other guys, that's fine. And that's not so good either because that really disadvantages the smaller companies. So it's a challenging thing to balance it out. It is. And so you see these companies not for necessarily public policy or, or ethical reasons, but for, for business and, and kind of customer relations reasons now responding and uh, making decisions about what things are permissible on their platforms and what are not based on kind of enforcing their terms of service. That's the underlying yeah. thing. And it puts them, we, we society have put them in a quasi-judicial role when they really, uh, in some ways, it's not appropriate. I mean, nobody made them the arbiters of, of what is fair and free speech. Well, to some extent, 
the customers made them arbiters because people said, we like the rules in this platform, that's why we're here. Sometimes they're not aware of the rules or the impact of the rules is unexpected, but it's having them be arbiters of speech is not the worst thing in the world versus having them say, people can say anything they want because we make money. I mean, I, I went to this wonderful conference called Miss Infocon, as in misinformation, and one of the best bits of it was they brought in one of these guys who'd been spreading horrible political lies, and he really was completely uninterested in politics. He was just making money. And the thing to understand is that a lot of this stuff is, is more about making money than it is about political things. And, you know, that's good. I'd, I'd rather have people make money off me than, than control me. Of course, they are controlling me to make money, trying to make me eat food that's probably bad for me and you know, do things that in the long run I will regret having done and so forth. So there, there's no simple answer but it is not so black and white that they should take on this responsibility. When The real issue is whenever any single entity takes on too much responsibility, you end up with some invidious result because the centralization of power is the problem. We've been talking about fake information and manipulative information, and one of the things that's happening now is that the technology is getting better and better at hiding any alterations. So the latest thing is yeah. this uh, deep fake video of uh, Speaker Pelosi. Pelosi. Yeah. Right. So what are we going to do about that? I mean, at some point, we have to think differently about things that we see. It's yeah. changing our long programmed genetic Instincts. way. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah, precisely. It used to be we knew people could be quoted wrongly. We didn't think they could be photographed or especially videoed, and now we're beginning to understand, oh yeah, they can do that. The problem is it often doesn't make people seek the truth. It makes them just not believe in anything at all. And that's, that's invidious because it is faith and security and a sense of purpose and trust that enable us to live healthy lives and, and work for a better future. And so, I mean, I think you're, you're going to find at some point a reversion to trustworthy institutions. And, you know, the New York Times is certainly vying to be one of them, and, and so is Fox News, perhaps with a little less consistency. It becomes harder and harder to know what you trust. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think we continue to go closer backwards, if you will, to what's a trusted brand, where can you where can you get the real information, if that's what you want. If you want to just be entertained by fake videos of, of Nancy yeah. Pelosi, then it's a different story. Well, yeah, this is the challenge. We're becoming a society of short-term entertainment rather than long-term belief and purpose. And you have to wonder if at some point there will be some, you know, call it cultural, religious, kind of non-neoliberal, non-economic reversion to we want values of truth and faith. Right. Well, we can hope for that, I think, at least in part. Let's go back to the question of big tech. So the House Judiciary Committee is holding antitrust investigations. Speaker Pelosi warned of the, quote, unwarranted concentrated economic power in the hands of a few is dangerous to democracy. Elizabeth Warren is also pushing back. Is it time for a breakup? Do we need to have a revisit the trusts, the railroad trusts of the last century or the big telcos? 
I'm not sure it's time for a breakup because you just end up with metastasizing things. And if you look at history, most more companies die of slow suicide than of murder or somebody else doing it to them. They get too big. I mean, right now you're seeing a lot of disaffection among employees of both Google and Facebook. So to some extent, the thing I would do is focus much more on the business model. So companies start out with DNA. There's the founders. They're usually young and idealistic, and they create this thing, and they hire people, and the company grows, and slowly the metabolism takes over. And when the metabolism is our customers or advertisers or politicians or what have you, and the people who use our service are merely basically product for the customers, that fundamentally perverts that original DNA of, of good intentions. And it's, it's subtler than just breaking something up, and it's, it's more challenging that maybe there's some kind of requirement to change your business model. And you know, I don't know exactly how that would work. I mean, I would love to see Facebook suddenly say, hey guys, you are our customers, we're gonna charge you all $40 a month in the U.S. and $10 a month in the emerging world, and we're not going to take money from advertisers. Imagine. Well, you mentioned earlier that these companies are becoming more like utilities, and in our country anyway, we tend to regulate utilities because the market doesn't allow competition. With a utility, in a lot of cases, it makes more sense economically to have one or a few providers is that the situation we are here, and do we then need to have a, uh, a Internet Utilities Regulatory Commission? Not really, and that was sort of the point I was making. I'd rather allow for competition to erode their power than give them some privileged... I mean, this is what happened with AT&T. It was a utility, and then they broke it up. But well, it would have been better simply to allow the competition to erode AT&T's place. I mean, what I probably would have argued against was the acquisition of Snapchat and Instagram. So there's something about a merger that's more problematic than the growth of a single company. And you do want to regulate various kinds of anti-competitive behavior. But I suspect that Amazon is, is eating into Google's advertising revenues. And We'll see what happens with Facebook, but I don't think we need to break the thing apart for the competitive landscape to be very different within five years. It is true, as you said earlier, that it's hard for new entrants to come into this market. These are such big companies, and it's all about the network effect, so it's, it's hard. I couldn't start a Facebook today. I couldn't. No, it would be hard to could, start a LinkedIn today. But you could start something else that will erode part of it. I mean, it's just like Amazon getting into the advertising business and business models will change. Again, if I were going to regulate something, it would probably be more around the business model than around the entities. And I would certainly go after disclosure and lies and lack of transparency and stuff like that, but more, more the actual behavior than the entities. Well, and, and I think those, the things you're suggesting, the government already has tools to do that. You can deal with uh, things like that, fraud, for example, fraudulent statements through the FTC. You can do antitrust on right. mergers. So. 
and they should be doing that perhaps a little more vigorously. Mm. There's this whole issue around supply chain, not just for were these goods made in Pakistan by child laborers, but advertisers regularly disclaim, oh, we can't help who advertises on our site. Well, yes, you can. There are contracts, and you can f follow the contracts, and companies need to take responsibility for what happens for who's advertising on their sites and for the disclosure those advertisers make. I mean, when I go into Macy's, that's very old, but they have these little nooks and crannies where different brands have these little shops. And the store that owns that real estate can't say, oh, I'm so sorry that we were selling counterfeit goods on the fifth floor. You know, hey, they rented the space. You had an obligation to make sure that they were selling the real thing. And in the same way, you had an obligation to vet your advertisers. Let's go to another domain out of the internet and into outer space. You have a long history of uh, experience and interest there, someone who trained to be a cosmonaut a few years back. How are we doing in outer space these days in exploration, in satellites? Is it going to have its moment? Well, this is really interesting because this month was quite exciting in, in terms of space. When I trained as a cosmonaut in 2008-2009 in Star City outside Moscow, the only way for an American who is not part of NASA, part of the government, to go into space was, in fact, to buy a seat on Russian capacity through a broker company called Space Adventures, in which I was an investor. And that's what I did. I, I bought a backup training and might have gone instead of Charles Simone, but he prevailed and had a wonderful trip. And I spent six months learning to be a cosmonaut. And it was amazing. And now, ironically, even the American government people are going up on Russian capacity because after the shuttle and so forth, there's no lift in the U.S. And now they are finally, the Russians were in a sense commercial long before the Americans. If you want a seat, we'll sell it to you. The Americans are trying to rebuild their own capacity to go into space using private sector like Elon Musk, which is great. And they are also saying, okay, yeah, we will allow you to basically run a hotel out of the out of our part of the International Space Station. That was just announced this month. They're working through what that means in practice and who can bid and stuff like that. But there's a whole lot of excitement because now that really creates not so much a business model that existed, but an actual a location on which you can do business until, for example, Bigelow starts building his own orbiting residential facility. So it's, it's really an exciting time for people like me who, I mean, I personally want to retire on Mars. I'm not ready to do that yet, and it's not ready for me to do it, but that's pretty exciting. Now, Elon and his crew need to start delivering, but the private sector is doing a great job and doing it, you know, let's be candid, faster than NASA would have. It's one of those cases, maybe sort of like the internet, where the government ended up starting it, and now the commercial side has taken it over yes. and is taking it over. Well, the commercial side takes over the boring stuff. It's sort of like space cargo and inner space. The government is still doing the Mars part, I mean, despite what Elon says, and it's certainly funding it. But it is, it is exciting. The government makes these long-term investments, and then the commercial sector comes along, and things begin to blossom. 
Yeah, I remember when, when the internet started, there was a huge scandal because some salesperson had used the internet from digital equipment to send an email soliciting people to buy the deck equipment stuff. And the notion of having like SpaceX on a rocket offended a lot of people. I think it's just great. That's true. It's a it's an awkward transition, but it, it makes the future really move yeah. towards us much faster. One other space issue: we have a proliferation of satellites out there now. There's you can see them at night. Yeah. Uh, a lot of data coming from those. What's happening there? Are we gonna we're gonna be more and better informed about what's going on? It's it's a piece of transparency maybe that is really out of control in a in a sense. It's very democratizing. Ah yes. So not the information we create, but the information we are now able to see. Yeah, that's really exciting. I think, I mean, again, it's sort of one step beyond the, oh, we saw the whole earth as a little marble. And now we can see the whole earth and all its data richness and get a much better sense of what's going on, whether it's ice caps shrinking and trees dying or how many cars there are parked in a store's parking lot so you can see how business is or who might be stealing your lumber. And the more you know, the more efficiently you can run things, whether it's a farm or a diamond mine or perhaps an environment. So as we mentioned, you're uh, connected and the executive founder of Wellville. What a great name. What's that about? So Wellville is a 10-year nonprofit project to work basically with five existing small communities to help them make themselves dramatically healthier places to, to live and to raise children. And the purpose of it is, from the point of view of the five communities, they want to be better places to live. Everybody wants that for themselves and their community. Our purpose is to use them as examples, as models, as inspirations, as evidence to try and change this is fairly ambitious, and we will not be alone. We're going to have, I hope, lots of allies. But to change people's thinking around health, we keep thinking of healthcare as a cost that usually occurs when you've lost health. And what we want to do is invest in health so that you don't lose it, because it is so expensive and painful to recapture it, and you usually can't. Whereas there's a whole lot of evidence that somehow has not persuaded people that if you invest in keeping kids healthy and building their resilience, that pays off for the rest of their lives, both for them and for society as a whole. They, you know, if you're a rich person who doesn't want to pay taxes, you shouldn't be paying taxes for these poor people to be sick on your dime and to go to jail and get addicted. Why not invest a little more up front to keep them healthy? They'll buy your products, they'll work in your companies, they'll be happy, they'll create a nice world for you to live in. And we've we've become such a short-term culture. And I started this in 2014 and, you know, kind of knew this in general, did not know it quite so intimately. And this was about a year or two before the whole opioid crisis blew up. There had been the crack crisis, but the opioid crisis concerned rich white people and got a lot more attention. So I started reading about addiction and I initially thought, oh yeah, Facebook addiction, that's a clever metaphor. But now I believe that addiction is a thinking pattern. It's 
not the subject that you're addicted to. If you're addicted to drugs, you have an additional physical issue, but it's, it's really that short-term gratification thinking. And so it's around desire. It's not around pleasure, because you desire that pleasure. It's never quite delivered. So short-term desire is addiction. Long-term desire is purpose. Everyone moves up and down that spectrum, but if you have a troubled childhood, you tend to move towards the shorthand. You become more vulnerable to addiction, to committing crimes, to all these like short-term thinking things. And obviously, if you think long-term, you think about your descendants, your children, your own, let me get educated so I can have a good job. But it's not just people. We keep running into organizations in these communities that are addicted to pilot projects and to grants. And of course, you have people in Silicon Valley who are addicted to exponential profits, exponential growth. Profits are great. They're permanent sustenance. But this obsession with, I want more growth, more year, it, it's simply unachievable, and it's got that same addictive sensibility to it. And of course, you have politicians who are addicted to votes and to power and so forth. But it's the institutions need to do the behavior change as well as the individuals. And the institutional behavior change makes it possible for individuals to live in an environment where parents have the time and the, the lack of stress to be good parents and so forth. So we're, we're just you know, humbly trying to change that mode of thinking. And we're hoping that by 2024, we'll have found a few more allies. We're not alone in thinking all this, but we have the luxury of 10 years. You know, it's ironic, you talk about long-term thinking, so you need the 10 years. For me, this is the headline of part of this talk anyway. We live in an addictive society, and we mentioned a bunch of different examples, but it's a societal change from the long-term to the short-term outlook. So you got to start on the ground, which is what you're doing. It's and very now. exciting. And now. And now. Well, let's uh, finish up here with a question about the future. You're talking about 2024, but what about uh, you know 2054? Uh, what's the world going to be like there? What does Esther Dyson see in the well, future? With luck, I'll be happily retired on Mars, and it will have been made into a nice place for little old ladies like me to live in. And we will have, there will have been some kind of backlashes, again, too short to remember the thing, but some kind of reversion to, this is the optimistic view, to let's think long term, let's Let's invest in human capital and human health the way we also need to be investing in physical infrastructure. Let's price in the externalities to the environment and again to, to humans of a lot of things. So we will pay more to childcare workers and people like that who help produce these healthy children that become healthy adults. We will be taxing various kinds of environmental challenges and we'll be taxing sugar and various other items that are bad for you. We will have figured out how to deal with AI and you know there, a lot of jobs will be replaced but there will be many jobs that revolve around being human to other humans. Some of them will be artists and you know things like that and again people who care for other people, people who interact with other people there will probably 
still be people who work 100 hours a week, but the norm will be considerably less. At the same time, ideally, most people will be doing work that is more fulfilling than what they're doing today. I'm looking forward to it. It's a great vision. I love that. Well, Esther, thank you so much again for taking time to be with us today. Thank you, and may it all come true. (laughs) Remember to look for us on our website, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcast under the name of East West Institute, where you can listen, follow, and subscribe so you won't miss our conversations. Thank you for listening.